I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. Joining me today is Brett Wigdors, the founder and CEO of Tiny, the startup offering what is called an Amazon-type solution for childcare. He founded it after seeing how difficult it was to find reliable childminding options as a father of three. Before turning his attention to early years education, Brett founded and spent 15 years as the CEO of Teach First, a world-renowned charity focused on incentivizing new graduates to get into teaching, which he led to become the largest recruiter of graduates in the UK. If there's a theme here, it's about backing the next generation, children, citizenship, society, and beyond. Brett, welcome to Changemakers. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's great to be here. Now, I've got to say, I'm going to start this because I am a, a good friend and a great follower of Jimmy's Jobs of the Future, Jimmy McLaughlin, somebody I've known over, over many years. And I trust his judgment. And he said that you're one of the most fascinating entrepreneurs in the UK. And yeah. I've been digging. I've got my thoughts as to why he might say that. Uh, what's your view? What, what, what sort of gets us to today, do you think? <laughs> well, I think there's probably a lot of other amazing, fascinating <laughs> entrepreneurs in the UK. So I'm not sure I'd be as bullish. I mean, I've spent the last 20 years really focusing on ensuring all children have access to an outstanding education. That's that's what drives me and I'm very, very passionate about. To me, it's the biggest civil rights issue of our time. I think there's lots of things mm. people worry about, rightly, the environment, other issues. But unless you ensure every child, every young person has access to an outstanding education, then we're basically saying that there's a whole uh, swath of young people, uh, the next generation, who aren't going to have access to the jobs they need or the futures they need to ensure society is successful. And, and I don't think we're spending enough time focused on that. Now, if I say born in the USA, my hometown, <laughs> and I'm on fire, yep. they feel like good chapter headings in your story. But there's also something that is about great songs that yeah. you have a connection with, isn't it? Tell us, tell us what, what I, I can see you smiling. You're getting, you're getting the link here. But you have a birthplace with a famous singer yeah. alongside you, haven't you? Yeah, and actually too, <laughs> almost. Um, but like, <laughs> I, when, when I was younger, I would say people, oh, my hometown is my hometown, and people would get what I'm talking about. I think if I talk to younger people today, they usually have no idea what I'm saying. Uh, so but, we are talking, of course, about Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen, right. And, so and, and, uh, and Ashbury Park, you're, you're, where you were born. This is where we pick up the story, right? That's right. My grandfather was the postmaster at Asbury Park. My dad went to high school in Asbury Park. We long family ties in Asbury Park. And my brother is a teacher in the town next to Asbury Park today. And he was just telling me a few months ago, Bruce Springsteen goes to his gym, actually, which I think is a great story. His local gym, Bruce uh, still goes to these local gyms to stay in touch with normal people. So it's good. But it's interesting because I've, I've listened to his own podcasting with Barack Obama and, and others. And of course, what you get from his story is the fact that Asbury Park is a big part of him. It's a big part of what gives him the fire that gives him gives him the story. I mean, did it shape you, Brett, in terms of the sort of, you know, the, the, the civil rights activist, the social campaigner? To what degree did the homestead actually create the future person? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, Asbury Park, so my family's lived there for, I guess, 100 years now or so, and it's gone through lots of ups and downs. Um, you know, it went from being one of the places that U.S. presidents used to have their summer holidays right near there, one of the big places in the in the country. And then obviously it had a really, people who know the story, it had a very difficult time during the civil rights movement. I think there was lots of mistakes made all, all along, you know, and lots of um, race wars and all sorts of difficulties, which was before I was born. And when I was a child, I think it was really recovering from all that and still in a bit of a difficult situation, really. Um, um, and then you see, interesting, in the last 20 years, it's it's kind of gotten another renaissance. And it's become a 
great LGBT. Um, I think it was a lot of LGBT communities that, um, mm. you know, you'd see, you know, 20 years ago, I was a lifeguard at the beach there. And you just see all these, you know, LGBT couples and others coming in and creating all sorts of creative industries there. And now Asbury Park, I think, is a really exciting place again, but it has a very different feel than it would have had 20 or 30 years ago. Mm. You see, I've, been, I've been trying to sort of create the idea. I'm trying to get to the golden thread. And I was reading, you know, I saw Asbury Park. I was looking for the kind of Bruce Springsteen connotations. Then I looked at the University of Richmond, the University of Hawaii. I mean, this this is a person that moves around, Brett. I mean, in this story, I mean, you don't, you don't seem to stay uh, in, in one place very long. Yeah, I've been here 20 years. Um, <laughs> I lived in Indonesia for a while. I lived in Hawaii. And I was supposed to just come to England for a one-year secondment. I was a management consultant at McKinsey working on how businesses could help um, businesses could help uh, attract and keep the best people. It was all about the war for talent. And I worked in Philippines and Singapore, all over the place. They sent me to London for one year. And I got on a project looking at how businesses could help schools. And to me, it was very much similar to the problem banks and other businesses were having. Um, how do you keep and attract the best talent? That got me excited to write a business plan for Teach First. And originally, I was supposed to take a one-year secondment for McKinsey to try to get it started. And that lasted 15 years. Um, so I, I originally was moving around a lot more. And then both Teach First and, and my wife, who I met 15, 20 years ago now, uh, kept me here. So 20 years. What have you found that you liked about the UK? I love the UK. I'm a British subject now. I have dual citizenship. And I think like many immigrants to many countries, including the UK immigrants, we often uh, see the benefits of our uh, new country more than people who are born in the country. You know, I, I think, you know, I, I mean, I'm not a Brexit fan. And I, that's, I think, very sad. But overall, I think Britain combines the best of Europe and the best of America. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of entrepreneurship here. I think people a lot of, you know, pro business, uh, unlike, you know, many places in continental Europe, but also there's that social safety net, there's the feeling, you know, that there's more to life than than just business, which doesn't always exist in America. Yeah. It's not quite I, as um, winning as the States. I was talking about I was talking to a US professor, and he said, the ideal in life is work American, live English. I mean, that was his that was his yeah. take on it. Um, but I mean, you've decided to work English and living and living in the in the UK. And of course, I suppose, in terms of picking up the how you did it, I was reading a, a very interesting independent article where you said, I would never go into teaching. And yet that same person was to go on to create Teach First. Yeah, my mom's a teacher and my brother's a teacher and all my aunts and uncles and cousins. I mean, I come from a family we laugh, you know, if we lived in the Middle Ages, our surname would be teacher, probably because everyone's a teacher. And of course, growing up, the last thing you want to do is anything your parents or your family are into. And I just thought, what what sort of person would become a teacher? Obviously, you don't want to do what your, your parents are doing. But obviously, you know, when you grow up in that sort of environment, you realize the importance of teaching around our dinner table, you know, my family would always talk about teaching, about the children they were working with, about, you know, the sense of making an impact. And that definitely got into my head. And, you know, I think I always felt teaching is a really noble profession. Well, well it's funny. I was going to ask you, interesting you said the head, because my question was going to be, what, where did it where did it get you? Did it get you in the heart or the head in terms of that, that story and those experiences? Yeah, it's a good point. Probably in the heart, I think. That's a good point. Um, I think, you know, where I always came from was teaching is an amazing career. It's one of the few careers where you could actually be a leader day in, day out. You can change people's lives day in, day out. And when I was doing all this work on the war for talent for banks or for accounting firms, you realize the sort of things that they're advertising are the things that you get as a teacher. So if you look at PwC or Deloitte, what do they advertise to graduates? They don't say, you know, be an accountant. They say, be a leader, you know, make change happen. They, they advertise that part, which teachers get every single day of their career. They change people's lives. So it often made me think, why aren't 
enough great people entering into teaching when we know this is a fantastic career and hits so many of the points that people want out of their careers. You know, and part of it you could say is is pay and benefits and all sorts of other things. But I do think the main thing which I felt with Teach First was it's not marketed the right way. It's not communicated the right way. It doesn't bring people together in a, in the right sort of community in the mm. sense of the movement in the right way. And, and that's what led to Teach First, that sort of. And, and it's interesting you say that because, you know, you, you've been here over a period of time where you and others have help to transform the reputation of, of teaching. And I, I think it's, you know, and, and I speak about this for personal experience. My, my, my sister-in-law was a, was a, was a head teacher and had, had a lot to talk about in terms of the sorts of messages that, that, um, you know, you were talking about with, with teach first in terms of the fact that, you know, I am a leader, I am doing things which are incredibly stretching and there is growth. And yet, this has also coincided with really a reputation that had to change in terms of actually people actually understanding what what teachers actually do. How hard has it been to change that reputation, do you think, in terms of, I suppose, the period of time that you've worked on on that exam question? So I'd actually say I think it's easier than many people thought it would be. When we started the conventional wisdom was um, top graduates for the most part didn't want to teach in low income schools or in comprehensive schools. There were hardly any going into those schools at that period of time. And I actually think teaching can sell itself. You know, it's, it's easier than people think that graduates for the most part and, and people looking careers, except for a small minority, aren't necessarily looking at maximizing their income or maximizing their benefits. You know, they're looking to get enough salary that they can live a a middle-class life, but that's not their most important thing. The most important thing for most people is making an impact, mm. feeling you actually have some sort of autonomy and leadership roles, that you're developing your own, you know, professional persona in lots of ways, you know, that you're going to work and you're feeling you're actually helping to change something. And, and, and I think teaching does that. Right. Do you think that that is especially so now, or has that been always the case across the 20-year landscape that your experience has covered? Yeah, I think it's been always the case. I mean, there's been some ups and downs. And and often, you know, it depends on the outside environment. When we were starting, uh, many top graduates wanted to go into banking, which which is probably less popular now. And I think almost it was either, you know, we, we kind of put ourselves against the banking career as, you know, this is something you're not going to maximize your salary, but you are going to be able to, you know, make a real impact each, each day and actually go to work feeling you're making change happen. Uh, I, I think I think that's sort of something that all human beings are always looking for on their day to day lives, right? I mean, very few people want to do a meaningless job. I think, you know, even if you got paid for just sitting in a chair and not doing anything all day, you wouldn't want to do it. You want to do something where you're actually helping people. I think that's mm. a human but, condition. But I, but I suppose the thing that um, you, you, you would say, certainly, from, from a visibility point of view is that people seem to be much more activated, much more socially aware, much more socially conscious, much more activist in, in nature. And I suppose the, the question is, is that was there a moment of awakening or, do you, or, or has it just been the fact that we just now talk about it more? It's a certainly frontline experience. I think it was always there, actually. So even when we started, um, it took a few years for Teach First to really take off. But I, I always make the example that PwC, for instance, was has been like one of the top recruiters for decades now. And if you looked at their graduate recruitment materials, it was all about impact and leadership, you know, for the last 15, 20 years, right? And when I was working on the war for talent for banks, um, for the most part, banks attract and keep great talent, not just with salary, though, you know, for banks, maybe it's a special case salary is very important. But all they talk about, you know, McKinsey, and also management consulting, they talk about the impact you make, they talk about mm. you know, how you'll be helping people, you know, that is the veneer that I think most jobs actually go around, because that's, that really sells to top talent. Mm. Now, 
you will know, and, and I'm, I'm sorry to put the negative spin on it, but, but, but the critique of Teach First is, well, you're putting inexperienced graduates into difficult school, schools. They may have a very short-term relationship with, with that school to advance their careers in other professions. And this doesn't really address the long-term issue of, of teacher retention. That, that's what your critics will say Teach First, you know, sort of um, doesn't address. I mean, how, how, do you, how do you feel about that when you hear, when you hear it put like that in terms of you know the organization that you've built and the, and the difference that it makes yeah i mean i think um well there's a few ways i didn't pick that the first thing is i think every school needs a mix of talent they need people who've been there 20 30 years they need people who are new and i've seen schools and organizations where everyone has been at the place for 30 years and those are usually not very successful institutions or schools um you know so i think you need a mix of talent in any organization um teach first teachers stay at the same percentage as other teachers so, mm. so just to start with that a similar or even higher percentage of our teachers are still teaching five or ten years later than than any other route so you know that just on a mathematics point of view, statistical point of view, that puts away. But where I always feel is we should be much more relaxed about people leaving teaching and coming back into teaching. And I think mm-hmm. I've always felt for 20 years now, it's just absurd to say, okay, everyone who trains as a teacher should be doing it until they, you know, for the next years. I like, mean, it's an yeah. interesting point that, isn't it? Because, you know, I suppose in, in, in a, a lot of other professions, mobility is seen as a, as a good thing and lots right. of different experiences. I mean, how, how do you sort of socialize that as an idea that, that teachers might see as being an important part of their own career trajectory? Yeah. I mean, on the positive way, what I would say is, teaching gives you great skills you can use in other careers and why do we think that's a bad thing you know um i think if you do want to go into other careers teach for at least a while and then go into that other career and then you know that's not bad for schools i think what we would say longer term what's great is even if you go into another career you stay involved in the mission of those schools so you know we currently have a situation where we have so many charity leaders business leaders politic political leaders who are teach first alumni who understand the day in and day out struggles of children in disadvantaged schools and understand what's going on in those schools and i think having those people in other roles is only a good thing for those children and for those schools mm. um, the last thing i'd say is we now at teach first have over 100 head teachers who have done teach first and the last i checked a majority of them have spent at least some of their career outside teaching so more than half of the people who become heads you know teach for a while then go into another career and then come back into leadership role and i i also think that can make them more effective leaders like i don't think that's a bad thing i think the um the other issue that i think goes alongside this is the evident i suppose disruption and activism that has gone alongside the world of teaching where teaching was not always the most vocal a profession in terms of putting its view about the world forward i mean certainly wouldn't you wouldn't expect educators to say things like educational equity is a massive civil rights issue we don't spend enough time talking about that's what you said by the way it was beginning yeah. you know, because because actually it was almost like well our job is to serve not necessarily to you know to sort of make our our views known but of course what we do know now is that that is essentially the fire in the belly in terms of well why be active why why make the change i mean have you noticed that that people become much more activated in recent years about this. Yeah, I think people have become more activated. My worry is the last few years, it's almost receded a bit with COVID, with, you know, so many other concerns, you know, going on in the world. And almost people think, okay, this is sort of a nice to have worry that we can worry about once we deal with climate change, or we deal with, you know, the economic crisis, or all these other problems that are popping up. And I I mean, I just want to keep on getting across, this is a fundamental problem. You know, I think I always take a step back and say, do we think it's okay that there's a subclass of children who don't get the education they need to be successful in life Mm. and where is that going to lead us in the future around social mobility or about creating equitable society like there's a bedrock of education that needs to be built on 
who's listening to that question, Brett, when you, when you pose it, who yeah. in society actually goes, yes, and this is what we can do about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel like in the past we, we had more traction among policymakers and people. I feel like there's less traction now and it, it worries me, especially post COVID when we're seeing these gaps um, mm. grow. You know, I think for about 15 years, there was some really positive developments in England that sometimes, and in the UK, which we sometimes don't talk enough about, you know, we really did start improving the lot of children in disadvantaged circumstances. There were some outstanding low-income comprehensive schools that were among the best in the world that were being developed. Uh, you know, the statistics were beginning to look a bit more positive in lots of ways. And then the last three or four years, it started to go in the opposite direction. And COVID and economic crisis has, has moved things even more in that direction, which, which really worries me. Is the response to that a straightforward, this is what government does and this is what it needs to do? Or is there a wider coalition of interests here that addresses is the problem. I think it has to be a wider coalition of interests. So Teach First was started from the business community with some support from Blair and, and that government and civil society. And I think it has to be in all our interests. I mean, you know, businesses have an interest of ensuring there's enough great employable people in the future, but it has to be much wider than that. I think everyone in society has an interest in ensuring we don't develop an underclass of uneducated individuals who are unemployable and, you know, will be a drain on society and, you know, be a massive problem for everyone in the future. I mean, it's in everyone's interest that the whole future of society gets the education they need to be successful. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned Blair, because I'm I'm thinking as you mentioned him, you and Blair, his son and multiverse. Mm. And, you know, the fact that there are a number of, you know, I suppose disruptive technology entrepreneurs that see education as a as a new frontier. And yet that stands alongside, you know, an environment where, you know, sort of teacher salaries have fallen by nine percent in, in real terms over, over the past decade. A lot of feelings of being, you know, under siege and under stress. I mean, it's almost like two stories that live are living on parallel train tracks, isn't it, in terms of actually how we see education and its future? Yeah. I mean, I think in the end, teachers are the bedrock of an education system. So I think, you know, disruption is really important. I think tech can be really important, but those are all supportive things to teachers. And I don't see any future in our lifetime where teachers, you know, until AI and robotics get to a certain level that I think is a long way off. And even then where, you know, human teachers aren't the bedrock of an outstanding education system. And, you know, one thing I've seen around the world is no school I've seen can ever be better than the quality of its teachers. You can't mm. get an outstanding school with average teachers. So at some point, a strategy around recruiting, training, supporting, developing the best teachers has to be core. I and I wonder whether you can extrapolate your point about no school can be better than the quality of its teachers. I mean, I mean, do you think that actually it's something you could say about society that no society can be better than the quality of its, its yeah. teachers as well? I mean, absolutely. Because if you think no school can be better than the quality of the teachers, and you know, schools give us the the citizens that are the futures of society. Um, you know, it. it Stands to I mean, I'm a big believer that teachers are the most important members of society. And, you know, they make the difference that, you know, of who we're going to be in the future. Uh, so we don't invest in them at our peril. I mean, you mentioned the, you know, the effects of the pandemic and about how things have dipped um, in, in recent years. I mean, do you get a sense that, you know, we've, we're going through these massive, you know, global headaches at the moment from pandemic to global recession? I mean, do they knock this off course? Do they knock progress off course? Or are they the blips that are ultimately overcome in terms of your your sense of the future direction? I mean, my worry, I'm really worried they're knocking things off course. I mean, I'm really concerned that I do feel like cross-party, cross-society 
you know, education and ensuring children from educational disadvantaged backgrounds got access to a great education. That was something that was top of a lot of people's agendas. I feel like that's dropped down people's agendas now. And um, the fact that, you know, many of these gaps that were closing are now opening again, isn't getting enough coverage. You know, mm -hmm. you see the last five years, what it's been dominated by Brexit, by COVID, by, um, you know, economic crisis, by all, all sorts of other things. And you don't see people really talking about this issue. And as that's happening, you know, a situation that was starting to improve is now, you know, getting worse. And you're getting a whole subclass of children out there and young people who are going to enter society without the education they need to be successful. Um, and I've seen firsthand COVID has definitely exacerbated that in a really scary way. Now, I think there's a, a cautionary call out there be careful, you know, almost like, you know, I, I think about that phrase of the Cinderella asset, you know, you never quite know what you've got till you've lost it in terms of teaching. And I suppose that that's a sort of, you know, fairly sort of pessimistic place to turn our interview, because I also want to talk about Tiny, which is, which is your, you know, your new venture, which I suppose takes you out away from the kind of the, the core work of, of, of Teach First into an allied, but, but different area. Tell us a little bit about, about Tiny, Brett. Yeah, so after so I spent 15 years at Teach First, and we got to a really great scale. And you know, I felt really good about leaving leaving that at that point. And about at that point, I spent about a year trying to think what did I want to do next. And I knew I wanted to do something that continued, you know, with the mission of ensuring all children have access to a great education. And during my time at Teach First, I got really fixated on the importance of high quality education for younger children. So at Teach First, we started secondary schools, and then we moved into primary schools. And I quickly realized actually, you need to start working with children even younger than primary mm. school because you know, you can see and I could see the difference between children in year one who had had a great earlier um, experience and those who hadn't. Um, and there's tons of scientific you know, evidence over the last 10, 20 years to back that up around brain development, the importance of early years. But yet I think society almost sees this as just something that parents and, and, and often moms, you know, mothers should just volunteer their time to do and, and doesn't require the, you know, expertise necessary. And just one thing I'd say, I mean, the government spends less than half as much per early years child than it does for a primary or secondary school student. That's mm -hmm. one example. And there's no logical reason for that to be the case, you know, in any way. And this may well sound like Brett, the campaigner that we met at Teach First, but this is Brett, the entrepreneur backed by venture capital that is delivering an Airbnb, Etsy or Amazon type solution to borrow your words right. in terms of the, this is now Brett in business. How, how, does that, how does that feel in terms of your ability to survive space, maintain social purpose and social direction and building an impactful business that also has to make a profit? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not that different from a charity, to be honest, <laughs> because I mean, I think, look, we're, we're a very socially focused um, business. My two co-founders who Ed, Ed Reed and John Newbold um, have, have the tech background, they both come at it from a very social purpose. Like a charity, you need to make the books balance and, and you need to ensure that's something that can scale and grow and, and be successful. And, you know, we're, we're seeing ourselves as a sort of B Corps that, you know, has many, many people who we want to have a benefit from it, including mm. obviously our investors, but also the young people working with and our child minders. Does, does your mindset have to change? I think a, a little bit in that, you know, we obviously have to think in a more commercial way and, you know, spend a lot more time thinking about pricing and everything. But in the end, it's about keeping customers happy. And I think Teach First, we had that. I, I don't think the mindset's that different from Teach First. Mm. Yeah, I, I wonder whether this is an easier time to do it because, you know, quite, quite often when, when you look at, you know, a B Corp as a process is that a lot of organizations organizations go through that process and of course they have to adapt to change because you know they may not have been born with the same sort of social impact values and goals that perhaps a business like yours is born with you know that might also be a timing perspective which is that if you are a business born today I mean is it the case that that ability to make social impact needs to be much more 
hardwired if you want to go for the sorts of capital that you hear, you know, sort of BlackRock and others talk about in terms of the the sorts of businesses that they're going to back for the future. I mean, is has the, has the time for the social impact business really come? I think so. So I'd say on both sides. So on the charity side, first of all, I'd say, I think it's very hard to scale a charity. After 15 years in the charity world from going from McKinsey, I wouldn't say I'm a massive fan of charities, to be honest. And I think there's a reason uh, most charities don't scale and grow. And many charities don't have a major impact in their core mission. Uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. But if you think about it, you know, VC backed companies are much more likely to scale than a charity is. I mean, and, and the reason I wanted this to be a VC backed business is more because I think that gives it a better chance to scale and grow and, you know, have the impact I want it to have. And mm. it's much easier that way. Um, and, I, and I do think, you know, from what I've seen, the VCs we're talking to and investors are very interested in social impact. And that's definitely something they want, you know, from the and, and, and of course, you know, this is the time where businesses being called on to step up, not just in education, but in climate, in in issues like equity and inclusion and diversity, lots of sort of areas where, you know, the day job for business is completely different than perhaps it was those 20 years ago when, when you founded Teach First. I mean, and I'm sort of thinking, you know, we're sort of moving to, I suppose, the future panorama and, and how you see it. I mean, you've, you're building a, a new business at a time of great societal change. How do you feel about that societal change in terms of your ability to make a difference and the need for positivity in quite tough times to do so? Yeah, I mean, it, look, it's very difficult times now, isn't it? And I think during times like this and, and maybe, you know, in the, in the coming years, um, having an ability to make positive social change is even more important, right? And I think, you know, the way this change will happen is by using tech. Teach First didn't have a tech background, but I knew what I wanted to start after Teach First had to have a, a very core tech focus, which is why I, I'm working with these two co-founders who are brilliant, who, um, who come from a tech background. Because I think, you know, the future has to be tech enabled because that is a way you can make an impact. And it has to be about bringing different parts of society together to make that social change. Mm. Um, so, you know, to solve these problems, that's the only way to, these problems aren't going to be solved just by government doing something and they're not going to be solved in an analog way. It, it has to be solved by bringing sectors together and using tech. I, I'm always sort of struck by a, a US Department of Labor stat, which says that two thirds of primary school kids are going to go on to have jobs that have no current job description. We are looking at a disrupted future where a lot of the the normal rules will no longer apply in terms of the way we do things, what we learn, how we learn. In terms of how entrepreneurs can help create that adaptable future within the entre- within the sort of the educational landscape, this is going to be a, a world where these two tribes are going to need to come together, aren't they? Yeah, they'll need to. I mean, there's all sorts of you know, interesting things happening in ed tech. I would say like this has been going on for a long time. And I remember the first round of it, maybe 15 to 20, even 20 years ago, I'd say it was 20 years ago where Gordon Brown put whiteboards in every school. And I think the first round was very much about gamification of education for kids. Uh I'm not sure that was, you know, as effective as people thought, you know, I don't think that was a game changer. I wouldn't say that that was a game changer. I think now what's exciting to me about it is it's a lot more about making teachers and schools more effective. And, you know, I've seen tools like that, you know, that's part of what we're trying to do at Tiny with child minors, make child minors more effective. That to me is much more exciting, I think, because then you're actually getting to the core of how you can make education better as opposed to, you know, just kind of gamifying things for children. So my last question for you, one of my researchers had dug out this this uh, quote from you. You said that 10 years is the max anyone should lead an organization. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's probably true. How are you feeling? <laughs> I know. I think it's. I don't know when I said that, um, but I, I think it's true, isn't it? I mean, it, you know, I probably said that when I was in my twenties and I was just uh, very young. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I stayed at Teach for fifteen years. I think you know, probably it would have been fine for me to leave after ten years, and I was probably the last few years I was spending some time helping it go into other countries and having a good time with it and things like that. And uh, you know, it, yeah, I don't know. You can think of others, but it's really difficult uh, to find many leaders who are better in their second twenty years and in their in their second 10 years and in their first 10 years, right? Maybe maybe Steve Jobs, maybe there's a few, but not many. Oh, brilliant. But I have to say, well, there's the story of the boss from the same town as the boss, Bruce yeah. Springsteen, yeah, all the way. He's he's still, got, I was going to say, he's, a lot of people will say he did he did survive much more than, than 10 years. But thank you for sharing your story. I mean, what a fascinating one. Thank you for all that you do in terms of making the educational environment that little bit better for everyone. Um, and, and thank you also for joining me on Changemakers. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Changemakers is brought to you by the campaign's firm Seven Hills and presented by me, Michael Heyman. Pure Being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant BT Wolf. To find out more, head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear, why not give us a rating?